So we're in this new series on the person and work of the Holy Spirit, and I'm really excited about it. It's great to be with you in God's Word today. If you could grab your Bible and turn to Acts chapter 1, that'd be fantastic, Acts chapter 1. What we're going to be looking at today is the baptism in the Holy Spirit. Incredibly important that we understand what it is, what it means, how we pursue it, how we experience it. And so we're going to be looking at the baptism in the Holy Spirit today. It might be something that's very familiar to some of us and very unfamiliar to others. So we're going to go straight into the Word of God and read from Acts chapter 1, beginning at verse 1. In my first book, O Theophilus, I've dealt with all that Jesus began to do and teach until the day when he was taken up, after he'd given commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering by many proofs, appearing to them during 40 days and speaking about the kingdom of God. And while staying with them, he ordered them not to depart from Jerusalem, but to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me for John baptized with water, but you will be baptized with the Holy Spirit not many days from now. So when they'd come together, they asked him, Lord, will you at this time restore the kingdom to Israel? He said to them, it's not for you to know the times or seasons that the father has fixed by his own authority, but you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem and in all Judea and Samaria and to the end of the earth. This is the word of God. I love this passage. I've preached on it loads. I love it. It records the last things that Jesus said to his disciples while he was still on earth. And it contains, if you like, think about it this way, three mighty threes. Three threes, which are incredibly important and have huge significance for Christian theology and practice. Three big threes in just these eight verses. And the first three, which you might have spotted, is the Trinity. The three in one three in oneness of the Trinity, the person of God. It says in verse four to five, Jesus tells them to wait for the promise of the Father, which he said, you heard from me, that is the Son, Jesus, for John baptized with water, but you'll be baptized with the Holy Spirit, not many days from now. It's a very Trinitarian statement. Jesus is building, if you like, the Trinity, the three in one God, right into his marching orders for the church as he's about to leave. You wait for the promise of the Father, which you heard from me, the Son, and you're going to be baptized in the Spirit. That's the way he talks about what the church will need. That's the first big three, the Trinity. The second big three in these verses is geographical and relates to the structure of the whole of the book of Acts and the trajectory of Christian mission. So there's another big three where Jesus basically breaks down his commission to the disciples and the structure of the whole of this book in a very simple sentence. So in verse eight, he says, you will be my witnesses in Jerusalem, which is the city they're in, in Judea and Samaria, which is the nation they're in, and to the ends of the earth, which is the world they're in. So he goes city, Jerusalem, nation, Judea and Samaria, world, ends of the earth. And actually that provides a grid through which you can read the whole book of Acts. So if you see the structure of this book works like that. The first six chapters are set in Jerusalem. And then the next few chapters are set in Judea and Samaria. And then the next, the rest of the book is set in going to the ends of the earth. And even the ends of the earth bit happens in almost like, it's like a stone being thrown into a pond and spreading through the city, the land, and then it goes to Asia Minor, Turkey, then it goes to Greece, and eventually ends up in Rome. 
and then after that ends up in far-flung distant islands like Britain or many of the lands that we come from as a church. So it's really a, a, a sort of pr- a paradigm for thinking about the whole book. So you have a, a theological three, which is the Trinity. Then you have a geographical three, which is Jerusalem, Judea, Samaria, ends of the earth. And then finally, there is this sort of trifecta, this triple whammy of doctrine, experience, and practice that was going to recur throughout the book of Acts and that Jesus draws our attention to as we understand the person and work of the Spirit. Doctrine, experience, practice. Sometimes people say, you know, the the Christian life is like a three-legged stool. You need doctrine, experience, practice. Uh, What the Greeks called logos, pathos, ethos. You need to think right. You need to feel right. You need to do right. Uh, We might even now say head, heart, hands. You know, what you believe what you feel, what you do, that kind of image. And Jesus does all three of those, excuse me, all three of those in these opening verses in Acts. So doctrine, verses two to three, he gave commands through the Holy Spirit to the apostles whom he'd chosen. He presented himself alive to them after his suffering, speaking about the kingdom of God. That is that in the days before he ascended, Jesus is giving them doctrine. He's saying, these are the commands I'm giving you through the Spirit. Then he moves on, talks about experience. Verse five, you will be baptized in the Holy Spirit not many days from now. You've got to wait for the promise of the Father and then the Spirit's going to come and he's going to ba- you're going to be baptized in the Spirit and that's going to change your experience of God. And we'll talk more about that in a moment. And then finally, he talks about practice. This is then what you're going to do. So you're going to believe the right things, your doctrine. You're going to experience something of God. And then you're going to live right. You're going to do different things. Namely, you will receive power when the Holy Spirit has come upon you and you will be my witnesses, Judea Judea and Samaria and so on. In other words, according to Jesus and according to the church then and the church now need three pillars in place. We need an understanding of what the Holy Spirit said through the teaching of Jesus and the apostles, in other words, the Bible. We need an experience of who the Holy Spirit is, which we might baptism in the Holy Spirit, and we need empowering for what the Holy Spirit does, that is, mission to the ends of the earth. We should know what the Spirit said with our heads, if you like. We need to feel and experience who the Holy Spirit is, baptism in the Spirit, and we need, if you like the hands, we need to be empowered for what the Holy Spirit wants to do which is to go to the ends of the earth with the good news of Jesus. And each of those three, as you can see, centers on the person of the Holy Spirit. But today we're going to look at the, the middle one, the experience of the Spirit, and particularly this, the baptism in the Holy Spirit, what it is and how we pursue him and how we pursue that experience. So what, what is baptism in the Spirit? A, I've now used that phrase a number of times, and it might be just, for some of you, go, this is a precious experience, and others, it's jargon. I don't know what it is. Because baptism sounds like a very formal religious kind of term, doesn't it? It sounds like, okay, well, you have a baptism is a religious word because we baptize people in water when, uh, as people are becoming Christians, that's the way we initiate them into Christianity. And because of that, the word baptism sounds like it's a very religious word. But actually, baptizo in Greek was a very ordinary term. It's a word you would use to drench or immerse or plunge or soak. It's the word you would use if you were going to dye a piece of cloth. So if I took this shirt and I plunged it into blue dye and then left it there for a while and then brought it up again, it would be blue rather than white. And that process of plunging it into the dye and marinating it, if you like, and bringing it out, you would call that 
baptizing it in, in the Greek term. You know, baptizo, you'd say, yeah, I've immersed it. I've soaked it. I've, it's absorbed the, the new color and it's come up looking very different. And that's a picture of what Jesus does when he baptizes us in the Holy Spirit. Or similarly, imagine baptizo is the kind of word you might use to describe when you get caught in the rain. And you think, I actually, to be honest, I didn't take my coat with me because it's only a short walk to the bus stop. But as I was heading out, the clouds did break. And by the time I got on the bus, I was absolutely drenched. And you would refer to that drenching. You could use the word baptizo to describe being drenched. It just means completely soaked through. Plunge, which is one of the reasons why we baptize people the way that we do in this church. So you, when you talk about John the Baptist, for instance, you, you could almost call him John the Soaker or John the Drencher or John the Plunger. I mean, that would make him sound like something that cleans the toilet. But yeah, John the Soaker, someone who just is drenching people because that's what people noticed about John's ministry. So it wasn't, and now we use it in, rightly in a very Christian-specific way, but at the time it was just the word you'd use to drench someone. One of my favorite examples of the way this word gets used, which I can really find helpful when it comes to understanding baptism in the spirit, is a recipe from a, a Greek guy writing about 200 years before Christ, where he gives a recipe for how you effectively make a pickled vegetable, how you make, say, a gherkin, something like that. And he says, what you do is you have a two-stage process. What you first have to do is you have to take the vegetable and you have to dip it in hot water and then you have to plunge it or pickle it in vinegar. And he uses two different words for those stages. The first word, he says, you've got bapto, you've got to dip it. And then the second one is baptizo, baptize, which is when you pickle it. So you, one is like a sort of, you put it in hot water, we might now call it blanching or something, where you put it in um, briefly into like boiling water and pull it out again. So you get your cucumber, that's in and out. That's a dipping. But that's not the word baptism. The word baptizo is then used for the second stage, which is when you pickle it in vinegar and you leave it in there for ages so that it is almost its entire nature is transformed. And that actually it's a transformative step which brings a completely new, so you taste a gherkin, you smell a gherkin, you look at a gherkin and it's markedly different from the experience of tasting, smelling or looking at a cucumber. I think that's a wonderful picture of what it is to be baptized in the Holy Spirit. Now notice two things about that image of pickling, if you like. The first, it's just an experience. It's something that you know has happened. It's something that you, you have been plunged, drenched and immersed in him and you're very aware of that. Like the dye is very aware that it's been changed, changed the shirt from white to blue. Or like if you get caught in the rain on the way to the bus, you step onto the bus and people look at you and think, yeah, that person's clearly been soaked. It's not something you go, has this happened to me? I don't, what do you think? This is something, no, you visibly. This has changed you. And that's really helpful. I often think of a guy in the church I was helping to lead in Eastbourne who um, he came to, uh, got baptized on a Sunday and uh, went into the pool and had this, you know, everyone's singing happy day or whatever. He gets out the pool and stands there and uh, the rest of the service carries on and he's just sort of standing there like a drowned rat with just water pouring off him onto the floor. And I went up to him and said, Alan, you're right. Why are you still here? Where's the towel? And he said, I just assumed a towel would be provided. And he was just standing there with water pouring off him onto the floor. And I always think of him when I think of the image of when someone has been baptized, they really know it. Like they are dripping. And so this is an experience that we are to have of God, that Jesus wants to give us of the Spirit, a transformative experience. And the second thing to notice, it's not just an experience. It is, as I just said, transformative as well. You start as a cucumber, you end as a gherkin. 
Baptism in the Spirit is not a trivial exercise. It's a transformative experience that changes the way you smell and feel and taste and touch. And another thing you want to notice when you look at the baptism in the Spirit in the story of Acts as a whole, this spiritual experience we're talking about, you discover that baptized in the Spirit as a phrase is used interchangeably with all sorts of other terms that appear in Acts, like filled or received or poured out or the Holy Spirit fell upon. So in the passage we just read, Jesus is speaking just before, uh, 10 days away from Pentecost. He says, wait, stay in Jerusalem. The Spirit's going to come. You're going to be baptized. You're going to be my witnesses in a few days from now. And he uses the dis describes it by saying, you will be baptized in the Spirit. But in the book of Acts, when that actually happens, in Acts chapter 2 and verse 4, the word that Luke uses to describe that experience is filled. On the day of Pentecost, when the baptism in the Spirit happens, he actually says, and they were all filled with the Holy Spirit and began to speak in other languages. And then when you go in, in, if you look at chapter 1 and verse 8, you find that Jesus doesn't call it, just call it being baptized in the Spirit. He says, the Holy Spirit will come upon you. He refers to it as the promise of the Father. Then, then, as I say, in chapter 2, he uses the word, Luke uses the word filled. But then when the Spirit comes to the Samaritans in Acts chapter 8, he uses the word received. And when the Holy Spirit comes to Cornelius in Acts chapter 10, he uses the terms fell upon and poured out. In other words, this profound spiritual experience we're talking about is Jesus and the apostles seem to use the words fairly interchangeably. Well, yeah, it's like a baptism. It's like a filling. It's like receiving, drinking, having it poured out. For having, having the Holy Spirit fall upon. In other words, baptism in the Spirit as a phrase is not a technical term for one specific encounter as opposed to all the other terms which refer to something completely different. They're actually, these words are all re related, overlapping, and often refer to the very same thing. And that's important because many of us will come from Christian traditions where a particular element of the Christian experience is identified as being what baptism in the Spirit is really all about. So in some traditions, there'd be some of us in the church, where we've come from in our Christian journey, if we've had a Christian journey until now, is that baptism in the Spirit is a technical term for conversion, for being baptized into Christ, really. And so when you become a Christian, you are baptized in the Spirit. That's what becoming a Christian is. That's how some of us will hear it. And then there's others of us who will say almost at the opposite end of the spectrum and say, no, baptism in the Spirit is a technical term for something that happens after you become a Christian that is a power encounter that means you first speak in tongues. So there are a lot of people in our church where that would be what baptism in the Spirit is. Now, that often does happen, as you see in the book of Acts, but it doesn't always happen. So in the book of Acts, there's a bunch of people get baptized in the Spirit or filled with the Spirit, and it doesn't necessarily result in speaking in tongues including the Apostle Paul, when he first gets filled with the Spirit, doesn't speak in tongues at all. In fact, the main thing that happens to him is he gets his eyesight back and then starts preaching about Jesus. So there's lots of people in Acts where you'd say, well, if you'd use that, if you use it as a technical term for that, that doesn't really fit these experiences. But if you make it a technical term for that, it doesn't fit these other experiences. So we're better off saying, I think, that baptism in the Spirit means being drenched, immersed, soaked, pickled, if you like, in the person of God himself. And that is a transformative experience that may result in the gift of tongues. It may not, and will result in many other things as we'll see. Now, don't worry, we'll come back to the gift of tongues or languages later in the series, because it's really important. But for now, just to say, baptism in the Spirit may well result in that for you, 
Maybe it has, maybe it will, but it doesn't necessarily, and it doesn't always in scripture or I think in modern life either. So that's just a sort of introduction as to what I think this term is about. So we need to broaden our understanding of what the Holy Spirit is doing when we are baptized into him. So when Peter is filled with the Holy Spirit on the day of Pentecost, he speaks in other languages. And those languages are earthly languages that other people can understand, right? We'll come back to that when we look at tongues. But when he's filled with the Spirit in Acts, in Acts 4, so he gets filled with the Spirit in Acts 2, speaks in languages, speaks in tongues. Then he gets filled with the Spirit again in Acts chapter 4 and verse 8, and he preaches the gospel. And then he gets filled with the Spirit again in Acts chapter 4 and verse 31, and he speaks boldly and the building shakes in a prayer meeting. So at the very least, Peter's had those three experiences of filling, and they've all resulted in slightly different experiences. Very different experiences, you might say. Then you go to Acts chapter 8. And you see the Holy Spirit fall upon the Samaritans, the people sort of north of Judea, north of the land of Jerusalem, when Philip is preaching there. We don't actually know exactly what happens when the Holy Spirit comes. What we do know is that it's so impressive that a local magician sees it and goes, I want to buy it. How, where do I, how do I buy? Where, who do I make a transfer to to have the power to give the Spirit? Because it's so impressive. And so we don't know quite what happens, but we know it's very impressive. And then when Paul is filled with the Spirit, as I say, he gets healed from blindness. You go forward another few chapters, Acts chapter 13 and verse 52, we read the disciples were filled with joy and with the Holy Spirit. That's, again, not the same as languages, not the same as preaching, not the same as building shaking, not the same as receiving your sight back. So all sorts of different marks of what the Holy Spirit might do when we are baptized in him. And no one of those things is like, it must be that or it isn't, isn't real. But actually, we often find a whole bunch of those things happening together. And I find joy, actually, the one in Acts 13 is a really good example because you will regularly find people in Acts who experience the Spirit and what the most obvious sign in a way is that they go on their way rejoicing and they start celebrating God and praising and delighting and exulting in him. Brothers and sisters, that's really important because sometimes people underestimate the most important components of the Spirit's work. The most important thing that the Holy Spirit can do for you is really not that you speak in tongues or not that you prophesy or not that you do work miracles or work healings. Those are wonderful gifts and we're going to talk for several Sundays about those gifts. But, but I'm so not, please don't hear me, I'm, I'm not, not downplaying them, but say the most important thing that the Holy Spirit will do in your life is to cause love for God and for other people and joy and peace to swell within your heart. And we saw that in Joe's message last week as well. And sometimes people can almost feel a bit shortchanged. You say, I haven't spoken in time, I haven't I've been, there's an American pastor who had told this story, but he said, I, was, I asked this woman, so what happened in the course of this ministry time that had taken place? And she said, oh, nothing really. And it's got this, you know, a deep sense of peace and joy, but I didn't really get anything. He's like, what do you mean you got this great sense of peace and joy and didn't get anything? That's what it's for. That's the most beautiful gift you can be given. And here you are dismissing it because it wasn't as loud and spectacular as someone else's. So yeah, you may receive the gift of languages. You may be filled with boldness or faith or joy or power to witness or healing or wisdom, assurance, prophetic insight, tears, laughter, shaking, all of the above. Praise God, but ask for more. 
Don't settle. Don't say, that's the thing that this means. That's how it happened for me. That's the only feature. No, press in and ask God for more of the experience of his spirit being as you are immersed, drenched, plunged into him. And the other thing to say, perhaps a little bit more controversially, is that I think we also need to rethink how often this kind of experience can happen to the believer. You see, because the word baptism is used for Christian initiation at the very start of the Christian life, in water, which only happens once, we tend to think that the word baptism means one-off encounter. That's all it can mean. But again, I don't think the word is actually that technical in, in Greek. It's, it just means drenched. And so, my, I mean, this would be my experience, and I don't want to put my story, my story on you. People have got very different stories, but I was converted as, I guess, at about the age of seven, small child. I first spoke in tongues or languages when I was 13, amazing experience of God's power. I was then baptized in water when I was 14. I had my first prophetic dream where you literally see a vision in a dream and then it comes to pass months later. You think, wow, that's what happened in the dream. That first happened to me when I was 16. I was then filled with boldness to preach and evangelize in my school chapel when I was 17. I first really started actually following God with my whole life when I was about 22. I first saw a physical healing when I said, be healed in Jesus' name, and he was, and this big copper guy rings me up afterwards and goes, seriously, it's completely gone, and I checked years later and it was still healed of it. That first happened to me when I was about 25, and then I was anointed for leadership in ministry when I was 30, and so, oh, that's about 10 different moments in my life. I could say, that was a dramatic power experience of the Spirit, and I hope I'm still having them. So I would be less worried about whether or not you can identify the moments, many of us can, but some of us can't. And some of us would say, I just don't know. Was there a specific moment that divides my life into before and after, a power encounter? Some of us would say, some of us would say yes, totally, that was my story. But others would say, no, my story's a bit more like yours, Andrew. I had lots of experiences and they've all been valuable. And I would say, don't worry so much about when you were baptized in the Holy Spirit and be more concerned and committed to whether you are baptized or drenched or immersed in the Spirit now. Say, rather than, can I put a date on it? Say, no, is this your experience now? Are you pressing it? Are you experiencing the drenchingness of the Holy Spirit? Is Jesus immersing you once again into his spirit and filling you with joy and praise and spiritual life and evangelistic boldness and spiritual giftedness all at once? And if not, ask God for more. Let me illustrate the point. I'm not a big fan of cats. Many of you know this. Um, others of you, it'll be new to you and you may not listen to anything else I say, but I'm not a big fan of cats. But this is a picture of a cat after being drenched or you might even say baptized, right? Cats get drenched once and they never forget it. And they never want to go anywhere near there again. That is not a Christian response to the drenching in the Holy Spirit. Baboons handle things a bit differently. Baboons know that sometimes they need to get drenched because they need to get from A to B. So they sort of walk like this across the, <laughs> across the river. Like they're trying to avoid getting too wet, but they know it's kind of necessary to get over there. That again is not a Christian response to the gift of the Holy Spirit. We're not to go, okay, I don't really want this, but I know that it's kind of needed for me to get power for witness. So I'll put up with it, but really I'd like to minimize its effects. Well, actually Christians are called to be as like hippos. That we are, we wake up in the morning, we're not actually waterborne creatures, not a dolphin, right? We live on the land, but as soon as we wake up in the morning, we say, do you know what? In order for me to get through today, I'm just gonna need to go and get drenched. I'm gonna need to be immersed in the spirit in the presence of God himself. I'm gonna to wanna to be plunged into him and have his 
peace and joy and love permeate my whole life and fill me with boldness and passion and giftedness and the like. I think that's such an important way for us to think about the experience of the Holy Spirit ongoing. I have a friend of mine who leads a very charismatic church. He's seen many signs and wonders, miracles, healings, remarkable man, and a good friend who was at a Christian conference when the speaker at the front said, I'd like to pray for people who've never been baptized in the spirit to to come to the front and I wanna pray for them. And my friend Simon sort of gets from his seat and goes to the front and his team stop him and say, you're a pastor of a church that's seen 200 people healed in the last year. What are you talking? You've been baptized in the spirit. He said, I don't care. He's asking that I'm, so for prayer, see if I want prayer, that I might be baptized in the Spirit. Yes, I do. I'm going to go anyway. And I love that heart. And I want that to be my, our, if we can, our response to God, which is God wants us to be more and more immersed and plunged and blessed and drenched in himself. And so when the opportunity arises, let's ask him for more and seek more encounter and more experience of him. So we're going to respond by praying in a few moments for that to happen for you. And for us. So let me just make a couple of comments about how we're going to do that and why. Two things that we often see in Scripture when the Holy Spirit comes are one, expectation, and two, impartation. So on the part of the person receiving, there is expectation. So if you want to receive the Holy Spirit, we come with expectation. We come to God saying, Lord, I'm asking you to pour out your Spirit on me in faith that you will because you love me. So this is, we get this from Luke chapter 11. It's so beautiful. Jesus says, which of your fathers, of you fathers, if your son asks for a fish, will give him a snake instead? Well, if you, though you're evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your father in heaven give the Holy Spirit to those who ask him? So we come with expectation. Lord, you want to bless me? You want to fill me with the Spirit? I can come in confidence and expectation. At the same time, with expectation on the part of that person, we find impartation on the part of the people who are praying and that often happens through the laying on of hands in scripture so we physically do this as a church we lay hands on people we do it sensitively and mindfully if you know there's obviously lots of ways you could be inappropriate in that actually just doesn't just it could be a hand on the shoulder it doesn't need to be anything more invasive than that but we believe that holy spirit the spiritual power is often imparted acts 8 at verse 18 the spirit was given at the laying on of the apostles hands Acts 9.17, placing his hands on Saul, he said, Brother Saul, the Lord Jesus has sent me so that you may, be, you may see again and be filled with the Spirit. Acts 19.6, when Paul placed his hands on them, the Holy Spirit came on them and they spoke in languages and prophesied. So this is a very normal thing in New Testament Christianity. The person being prayed for comes in expectation and the person doing the praying comes with faith of impartation to lay hands in particular. So this is not a time to go passive as a church. If we want to be drenched in the Spirit, we want to come with expectation. If we're praying for others, let's seek impartation. God loves to give good gifts to his children. Very practically, that means we lay on hands. We say, come Holy Spirit. We ask you to come and fill our brother, our sister with your Spirit. Often people will respond in speech. They will begin to praise or begin to speak in languages or begin to prophesy or witness. There might be physical responses. Sometimes people do. They, they have all sorts of things. Laugh, shake, cry, fall over, all kinds of... Don't, but don't fixate on the physical responses. They're, they may be very valid, but that's not, that's not the fruit we're deeply looking for. They actually often a sign that God is doing something deeper at work. Focus on love, joy, peace, praise, boldness, 
giftedness and so on. Look and see what's going on, observe what's happening, and actually ask as time goes on, is there anything particular I can pray for you? So this isn't a spooky thing we're gonna do now. It's what Jesus called the promise of the Father in Acts chapter one. Jesus said, John baptized you with water, but you will be baptized, drenched, pickled in the Holy Spirit just a few days from now. Let's pray. Father, we thank you for the promise you have made to give the Holy Spirit to your children. And we ask that as we now come to you and ask for more of you, you would meet us powerfully, you would bless us, you would change us, you would transform us, fill us with your life, and may we experience God. In Jesus' name, amen.